Well, this is the final week uh, in our series called Disciples, and the message today is for people who have been recipients of the grace of God. So anybody like that? Recipients of the grace of God. Lost prodigals who've come home to the Father and felt God's grace lavished upon them. Lost, proud Pharisees who've come to their senses and let God puncture their pride and have come home to the Father and received His grace. My message today has three points, just three points. It's really a response to the grace that God has given us. Now, some guy after the first service came up sheepishly afterwards and told me he fell asleep during the sermon. And I thought, oh, man, this is good stuff. Get your wife to preach it to you when you get home, okay? So right now, just nudge the person next to you on either side. Just make sure they're awake because it's just three points. And it is the response, I believe, that's called for from the grace of God, having received the grace of God. Number one, become a disciple of Jesus Christ. Number two, help other people become disciples of Jesus Christ. And number three, remember where people are coming from. I can easily see Jesus, I can envision Jesus talking to that prodigal who had come home and issuing these three challenges to that man. Or if the proud Pharisee had made the decision to come to his senses and come into the Father's house. I can see Jesus challenging him with these challenges. Since you've received God's grace, which comes to us through the gospel, amen, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sins, for our eternal life, these three challenges, become a disciple of Jesus, help other people become disciples of Jesus, and remember where people are coming from. I cut my teeth spiritually on a Christian campus in the early 80s. And discipleship was the buzzword at the time that was floating around the campus. All the guys I hung out with were talking about discipleship, discipleship, discipleship. I didn't really have a concept of what that meant. That wasn't talked about in the church I grew up in. And I came to understand through just hanging around guys who were sold out to Jesus Christ that discipleship really just involves following Jesus and helping other people follow Jesus. And those guys were passionate about that. And I caught it. Fast forward 30 30 years later, things have changed. I no longer have a hairy, big, hairy Canadian as a roommate who never showered, thank God. I have a beautiful Southern Belle from Virginia. We use different terms now. A lot of times we talk about gospel transformation or growing in grace or spiritual growth or those kinds of things. Same thing, though. Being a follower of Jesus Christ and helping other people become followers of Jesus Christ And then as we do that, remembering where people are coming from. We're going to be mostly in the Gospels this morning. We're going to listen to the words of Jesus, the words that flowed out of his lips as he talked to people, as he issued a call to people to become his disciples. We see it over and over again, this call, a clear call, a high bar, and an encouragement to count the cost. Let's look at the scripture from, I believe it's the book of Mark that's going to come up. Or Matthew, one of those books. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, what? Follow me. And he rose and followed him. John 1.43, we see it again. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip, and he said to him, follow me. This was the constant, consistent call of Jesus Christ to people he met. Follow me. Me, follow 
me. Some people think Jesus wants decisions. Some people think Jesus wants fans. But when you read the Gospels, you find that Jesus is not after decisions, but disciples. Not after fans, but followers of Jesus. Followers. Follow me. Jesus is going somewhere, and he wants to take people with him. Follow me. Follow me. But the bar is high. The bar of discipleship is high. Listen to what Jesus said to some people on one occasion. Luke 9. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Well, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Are you sure you want to follow me? (laughs) To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those back at the house. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So there's a clear call for discipleship that Jesus Jesus issued often, but the bar is high. And not everyone responded to his call. Some held back, some hesitated, some made excuses. Some said, I got some other things I got to do. It's interesting, my wife and I were laying in bed the other night and this came up. Strange pillow talk, I know. She brought it up. This call that Jesus made for people to drop everything and follow him. And we were talking about it, and I said, Honey, here's my take on this. Jesus Christ knew who he was. He knew he was God in the flesh walking the earth. And he knew when he came up to someone and called them to follow him, he knew that he had made that person. He's the creator God. And he was offering these individuals a once-in-a-lifetime unique opportunity to be personally discipled by God himself, the creator. And that that was worth dropping everything for and jumping on that opportunity. Jesus knew that. And for someone to hesitate or hold back or say, make excuses or say, I got to do all these other things first, didn't make sense. This was not an opportunity offered to people in other centuries like us or people in other cultures or countries. This was unique. Not only that, Jesus believed he was worth it. (laughs) I think... I told Shirley, I think the question for us today is, if Jesus were here now, walking around on the earth, and he called you or me to leave everything and follow him, would we do it? Do we value Jesus that much? Do we treasure Jesus that much to do that? Listen, becoming a disciple of Jesus was no small thing. And it was no easy thing. In fact, even today I would say, if you're looking for an easy life, a path of convenience and comfort, then the path of discipleship is not for you. Because it's not an easy path. There will be a cost, and the bar is high. Listen to more of these statements by Jesus. Mark eight thirty four. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And then he raises the bar even higher in Luke 14. Now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. 
Now, many people over the years have read these words and had this thought in their mind. Jesus needed some serious help with marketing. Like, if you wanted to start a movement, don't say stuff like that. You've got the crowds coming to you, and then you lift the bar so high like this. Jesus, what were you thinking? You say, what was Jesus going for? Why did he always seem to not only gather the crowds, but then thin them out by making these kinds of statements that seem to drive people away? Well, I think it's all about what Jesus was really after. Not fans, but followers. Not decisions, but disciples. These statements used to be offensive to me, but you know what? Now I've come to love these statements of Jesus. Because Jesus knew who he was. He knew that he could lay rightful claim to anybody's life because he made them. These are huge, colossal, gargantuan statements of Jesus Christ. Jesus was saying, I am worth living for. I'm worth dying for. I'm God. I'm worth your total and complete allegiance and devotion. Choose me over everyone else. Follow me even to the death if it comes to that. Listen, Jesus was was either a raving egomaniac or he was God. There is no middle ground. You know that? There is no other choice. Part of the compulsion I feel as a pastor here in suburbia in the 21st century is to challenge people to get their mental image of Jesus from the Bible. Read the Bible. What I see is that a lot of people are prone to manufacture in their head their own image of Jesus Christ that suits them but isn't really him. Read the Bible. When you read the words we just read, it should cause other punier images of Jesus to evaporate. Like the image of Jesus that some people have of of like the schoolyard kid wanting to be picked for the team. Remember that? Kids are lined up. There's captains out there. They're picking for the team. Can you just picture the schoolyard kid going, pick me, pick me, pick me, pick me. Some people visualize Jesus that way, standing there saying, please pick me, pick me, I'll do good for you. The captain says, ah, I'll take Gandhi over here. He'll do better for me. And Jesus says, oh, shucks, no one ever picks me. Listen, that mental image needs to be vaporized now. It needs to just disappear. That's not him. Or the picture of Jesus as the, the magic genie in the, uh, what's that thing called? In the lamp, thank you. You know, and Jesus is the genie in the lamp, and you rub the lamp a certain way, and out pops the genie and says, I'll grant you three wishes. What do you want? Take that image and set it next to the man who looked at people and said, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me, lose your life for my sake, which is the real Jesus. Our next series at New Life is a study through the New Testament book of Colossians, one of my favorite books. And Colossians, the writer, paints a majestic, huge, glorious picture of Jesus Christ. And it's my prayer that as believers in Jesus, that our vision of him will be expanded and that those tiny, puny images of Jesus, those mental constructs that we have in our mind, will be shattered as we see the Jesus who towers over history, who is huge. Jesus said, follow me, be my disciple. The bar is high. And then he said, count the cost, didn't he? 
before you sign on, count the cost. It will cost you. Listen to his words, Luke 14, 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it, enough money? Otherwise, when he's laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, the man began to build and he's not able to finish. (laughs) Or what king? Going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Count the cost. First, before you sign on, count the cost. You say, well, what will it cost me to become one of Jesus' disciples? Answer, everything. It'll cost you everything. Everything you think you own. He will call you to surrender to him. Your reputation won't be yours anymore. Your possessions will not be yours anymore. Your rights will all be surrendered to him. Your future will be in his hands. Your ambitions will become his. He wants everything. And true disciples of Jesus surrender everything into his hands. But it's a sweet surrender. It's a sweet surrender because of who he is. When I read all the statements that Jesus made about what he required of men and women, to be his disciples. I believe they can be summarized by this definition. I've put it in the box for you on your outline. Disciples are believers who increasingly treasure Jesus and his gospel above all else. Would you read that with me? Disciples are believers who increasingly treasure Jesus and his gospel above all else. That's the process of discipleship. Now, you're going to give your life to something. You and I, we're going to be consumed by something in this life. Something is going to become our obsession, our salvation. Something is going to captivate your heart in this life. It might be a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a career or a hobby or a car or a fantasy. Something is going to captivate your heart and life. It will. You know this. And Jesus is saying, if it's less than me, if it's something less than me, it's an idol. It's a small G, God, in your life. It will never deliver what you hope it will deliver to you. That girlfriend will never deliver what you hope she can deliver what your heart craves. In fact, to place that expectation on her, that's a heavy, heavy burden. That guy, that boy, it's never going to happen. Your life will be consumed by something or someone, and Jesus says, it needs to be me. I made you for me. I'm the, I'm the only one worthy of your total and complete devotion. Me. Your heart will be restless until then. And so Jesus issues a clear call. Become one of my disciples. Follow me. And he issues that today. He issued it 2,000 years ago. He's issuing it today through his word to us. Follow me. He says, I'm going somewhere. I want to take you with me. Follow me count the cost but come but you know what he did not have any intention that it would end there with one generation 
Matthew 4, 19, and he said to them, follow me and I will make you what? Fishers of men. See that? He did call people to become his disciples and then he called them to help other people become his disciples, his followers too. That's the second dimension of discipleship. Just before he left to go back up into heaven to be with his father, he gave this challenge to the 11 disciples who would remain behind. We call it the Great Commission. Jesus said, Matthew 28, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. That's quite a statement, isn't it? (laughs) I'm over everything, he said. And then he authored, with that authority, he conferred it upon his disciples. He authorized them to do something. Go, therefore, verse 19, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You see, he wanted it to spread. And it did. Jesus fever spread. Started in Jerusalem. It was contagious. It spread to Judea, Samaria, to the rest of the world. It even made its way down through the centuries to us here in Columbus, Ohio in 2012. And we who are seeking to follow Jesus now are called to continue spreading it, to be carriers of this Jesus fever into our schools, into our workplaces, into our families, in our city, and around the world. This is what we're called to. By the way, did you notice that in the Great Commission that being baptized is part of the process? Did you see that? Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Being baptized is part of the process of becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. Submitting to baptism identifies you, marks you, not as a perfect person, because there ain't any, but as someone who has a desire to live for and love and follow Jesus Christ. Going down under the water symbolizes that through Christ's death, you believe that your old life of being dominated by self and sin has died. And when you're raised up out of the water, you're saying, Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, through his life, I now live. His life is in me, and I live by his life. Baptism is the badge of discipleship. In the New Testament, all new followers of Jesus Christ were baptized. The only exception I can think of would be the thief on the cross. And he was hung up. I mean, he could not get there to do that. So short of that... Jesus calls all of his followers to wear that badge of discipleship, to be baptized. If you've never been baptized and you're a believer in Christ, you've believed the gospel and trusted your life to him, if you've come home to the Father, be baptized. Be baptized. Ask someone. Write it on your card. Tell somebody, I need to be baptized. Not only that, just as kind of a side note, the elders of New Life were discussing baptism this last fall, and they realized that in Scripture, the baptizer... The one doing the baptizing doesn't really have to be a pastor. Our pastors all love to baptize, but the New Testament appears to open up, open up that privilege to other believers as well, specifically those who are involved in discipling people. And so the elders wanted me to inform you that if, for example, you're leading a small group and someone in your small group turns from their sin, comes to their senses, receives the grace of God, is born again, and they want to be baptized by you, then you can baptize them. It's a high and holy privilege. Just, we just need to know that. Let us know that. 
All right, back to treasuring Jesus and helping others do that as well. So the first two points of the message are this. Become a disciple of Jesus Christ. Respond to his grace by becoming a follower of his. And then give your life to helping others follow him as well. How does that come about in the heart of a person, that desire, that devotion to Jesus Christ, that treasuring of him to where you just want to live your life for Jesus and help other people do that? How does that come about? Well, it's a work of God, isn't it? God does that. God opens people's eyes to see Jesus and give give them a fresh revelation of Jesus Christ as a Savior worth living for and dying for. God does that. But you know, God through his Holy Spirit, uses some means, doesn't he? He uses the preaching of the word of God. He uses other people in your life who already have the disease and are contagious. And he uses certain kinds of environments to sweep you up into that and carry you to a new place. That's what happened to me 30 years ago. God used the word of God, a bunch of guys who were sold out to Jesus, an environment that was kind of a spiritual greenhouse. It just, I got swept up in it. I got carried away into this journey of following Jesus. And really, that's what this whole 50-day journey that we've been talking about is all about. 50 days of focusing on Jesus first. It's about setting aside seven weeks as a special season to focus on Jesus in our lives And it's about you and I coming closer to other people, like-minded people who are on the same journey and want to learn together and sharpen each other in terms of our devotion to Christ and helping other people follow him as well. So I want to take a few moments and talk about this so that we're all clear and understand how we can be involved in these 50 days of focusing on Jesus first. So I've asked Jay, Pastor Jay, to come up and join me. And we're asking everybody to be involved with this. And there's three commitments during these 50 days that begins the weekend of February 4th and 5th. Three commitments. The first is to be here on the weekend, to just make a commitment. It's seven weeks, but eight weekends. Say, you know what? We're going to be there every weekend. Everything's going to kind of flow and emanate out of the teaching from Colossians that we experience here on the weekend. So making that a priority in your schedule. We're going to be there. We're going to participate in this. We're all in. The second piece is a personal piece, something we haven't done before. We've come across this little CD called Connecting with God. It is filled with truth from God's word, and there's like nature sounds behind it. It's really cool. And um, my wife loves this, plays it a lot. Just, you know, the Bible says renew your mind. Getting God's word into our minds by listening to it. Think about it. Many of you have a commute every day to work or school that's probably 10 minutes or more, right? Some of you like 40 minutes, 50 minutes. What do you do during that time? Get mad at other drivers, you know? Listen to 610 or whatever, NCI. Why not pop a CD in that's filled with the Word of God and let that just flood your mind with the truth of God and His Word? or in the morning in your quiet time, or in the evening before you go to bed. We're going to make these available to you beginning next weekend for the exorbitant price of $1. And I hope hundreds of you will, will, this is part of the 50 days journey, that I'll make a commitment. Every day, I'm going to fill my mind with the Word of God, somehow, some way. And then the third piece probably is the most critical piece, and that's doing this together with others in a small group. 
a 50 days small group. Most of our groups are going to follow the 50 days plan. Some of you are in a group. You already are. You're committed to a group. Jay is, I am, many of us are awesome. Just make sure you're fully engaged with that group during that time. Others of you have fallen away. You've gotten out of the habit. This is a time to re-engage. New year, new spiritual journey, 50 days. Call up your small group leader and just reintroduce yourself. Hi, I'm Dave. Remember me? My wife and I haven't been for a while, but we're coming back. God's talking to us, and we know we need to do this Christian journey together with others. But there's many of you who are not connected to a small group, and we wanted to formulate a way whereby you could be a part as well. And so Jay's going to talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So we asked the question, well, how can we get a lot of, help a lot of people get into a group or be a part of a group maybe that aren't? And so we decided to do something we've never done before, and that is we're going to encourage a lot of you to decide to just form your own group during these 50 days. And so what that means is this. Uh, you're going to find some other people and say, hey, let's be in a group just for these seven weeks. Let's make our own group and uh, let's do it together. I'll lead it and we'll take off with that. So I knew some of you would just freak out the minute you heard that. And so I thought, well, how do I help you do that? So we came up with this very simple little acrostic. If you remember your vows. He says a, we, but it was really him. It was me. Brilliant. <laughs> a memory device. Yeah. Go ahead. I have one creative thought a year, so you're screwed for the rest of the year, I guess. So. <laughs> A-E-I-O-U. Just remember your vows. I'm going to be sorry I said that. I know. A-E-I-O-U. Remember your vows. Here's, here's all you need to do. We're going to help you lead a group. We're going to help you form a group if you'll just do these five things. A, you need to attend one training. We're going to do a new leader lab uh, two weeks from today, 11 o'clock on Sunday, February 5th. So you can come to the 9 o'clock celebration or you can go to the Saturday evening celebration. And then at 11 o'clock, join me back in the prayer chapel. We're going to just walk you through exactly what it's like. You're going to participate in a group that's going to be exact. In fact, we're going to do what we're going to do in week one. You just show up at that new leader lab on Sunday, February 5th. So A, attend one training. E, you need to enlist a few friends. A small group of one is not a very good small group. It's small, but it's not a group. So you need to enlist a few friends. You don't need to enlist 30 friends. You just need to find three, four, five people who will go with you on this. Somebody else that's not in a group and say, hey, would you, for the course of these seven weeks, these 50 days, would you be in this newly forming group and do this with me? So E, enlist some friends. I... You need to indicate to us that you're going to do it because we want to help. So there's a sign up. There's a uh, insert in your celebration folder. You can use that to let us know because we want to help you succeed. I'm at your beck and call for the course of those seven weeks. We'll do everything we can to help you, but we need to know that you're doing it. So let us know. I indicate to us that you're going to do it. Oh, you need to open up your home. You got to have a place to meet. So whether it's your home or one of those friends that you enlist, you need to open up somebody's home so that you can meet there uh, once a week for those seven weeks. And then you, you're going to utilize the small group guide. And we put together a guide every week that many of our groups use every week. And it highlights back to the weekend messages where we're going to do the same thing through this so that what's going to happen is you're going to hear the challenge on the weekend, commitment number one, but in your small group, you're going to be talking about how do we help each other do this together. And if you'll come to that training, we'll show you how to utilize that small group guide. And with that guide, you don't have to be um, a seminary graduate or a theologian to lead out. In Absolutely not. If you love Jesus and you're willing to take some other people with you on this journey, then uh, you can do this. And we'll show you. We'll help you do that. Awesome. Thank you very much. We want everybody to be involved with this. All of us. 
seeing Jesus more clearly, hearing his call more clearly, doing it together, sharpening each other. I hope that you'll be all in like we are, and uh, we'll tell you more about that next week. I think that vowel thing is brilliant, don't you? That's just amazing, amazing. Well, I do have one final point to this message, and it ties back in to the story of the lost sons that we explored the last two weekends. Because of this, in our efforts to help other people catch Jesus' fever, we need to be aware of where they're coming from. So that's the third point. First one was become a disciple of Jesus. Second was help others become disciples of Jesus. Third, remember where they're coming from. You came from somewhere, right, to devotion in Jesus. The story that Jesus told of the lost sons, I believe, gave us a lens through which to view not only ourselves, but the people in our lives that we're seeking to influence for Christ. They are coming from somewhere. They have a particular perspective. We need to be aware of that as we pray for them and talk with them and get involved in their lives and maybe invite them to things, maybe invite them to a 50 days group. Some of them, I'm talking about your friends, your coworkers, your children, your parents perhaps, some of them are like the prodigal son in the story. They have a rebel heart. They believe that fulfillment in life and meaning in life and salvation will be found when they finally get free from all restrictions and structure and authority and can just do whatever they want. <laughs> Some of the people that you're burdened for, that's where they're coming from. That's what's in their heart. They dream of breaking out and expressing themselves, and what they really need is Jesus. They may not know it yet. Perhaps they have a faulty view of Jesus, though. Perhaps they view Jesus as someone who wants to hem them in and suffocate them and bury them under a mountain of rules. And that's not Jesus, is it? They need the real Jesus to break into their life. The one who said, lose your life in me and you'll find real life. Some people, that's where they're coming from. Others, though, are coming from a different place, a different perspective. They're more like the older brother in the story that we explored last weekend. They feel like they've always been the good one, the responsible one, and that God should therefore reward them by giving them a good life. When bad people seem to get all the breaks in life, it bugs them, drives them crazy. They feel that they're the ones doing the right things and others are messing everything up. Now, people like this usually are religious. They attend church, very likely. They do religious things. Perhaps they even pray, read their Bible, maybe serve in a ministry. They're nice people. They view themselves as being very responsible. But secretly, in their heart, they judge people. They condemn people. They are forever comparing themselves with other people and always coming out favorably in that comparison. They're walking around in life feeling superior to everybody else, mad at all the stupid people in the world, and thinking everybody just needs to be more like me and this world would be great. These are the Pharisees, the religious Pharisees. And they are often harder to win to Christ than the prodigals because they either think that they don't really need Jesus that much because they're good, or they think they already have him. They too are lost, just as lost as the rebellious prodigals, and they desperately need Jesus to consume their lives, even if they don't realize it yet. 
Well, I believe that that story gives us insight into how to pray for both lost prodigals and lost Pharisees. And I'm indebted to some authors for a little prayer guide that I put on the back of your outline. If you want to flip that over, maybe you're already there. People that we're praying for who are far from God, they're coming from somewhere, and we long to see them come home to the Father. Praying for lost prodigals there on the left. Here's some things that kind of emerge from this story that you could be praying for them. You can ask the Father to parent them, the Father, and to help you not become bitter, which is the tendency when someone abandons you or walks away from you like the prodigal did. It's easy to become bitter, isn't it? Father, help me not to become bitter. Pray for the grace to let them go and the willingness to endure for as long as it takes. We don't know how long the prodigal was out there. If the father had a large estate... And even a third of that would have been a lot of money. It might have taken him months or maybe even years to blow through. As long as it takes, God, I'm going to endure. I'm going to keep seeking, keep praying. Give me the grace to do that. And then pray for famine to come to them. Famine. Famine can come in many forms. And God can do that. The prodigal son only came to his senses when he experienced lack, need, desperation. You know, God has a way of doing that. He can pull out of someone's life everything that they've been relying on to bring them happiness. Pray for famine to meet your lost prodigal. Pray for a holy hunger and holy homesickness to come into their soul and invade their soul. Pray that they would come to their senses and be given the gift of repentance like the prodigal. Pray that they will be granted the ability to receive the grace of God when they do turn around and come back. The tendency is to feel like, you know, I need to earn my way back in. I need to earn it. I need to work hard. I need to grovel. I need to do something. But the Father just what? Lavishes his grace. Pray that they'll have the ability to receive that and glory in it. And then pray for a welcoming love and the Lord to pour out his riches when they finally do return home. Like the Father throwing that lavish party. You pray for your prodigals that way. We're going to do that in just a few moments. We're going to have a season where we just pray for the lost prodigals in our lives. But how about our lost Pharisee friends or children or parents? Well, you can pray that they'll hear this story, that God will, he could do that. God orchestrates things so they end up hearing the story of the prodigal sons and see themselves in the story. Through a radio broadcast or a podcast or a magazine, something, God can do that. Pray that God will orchestrate incidents that prompt Self-reflection, like when Jesus was eating with those sinners and the Pharisees just happened to be there observing what was going on. God can orchestrate these things. Pray that God will expose their self-righteousness and puncture their pride. That needs to happen. Like a big balloon, punctured. All the air going out of them. They'll never come to Jesus if that doesn't happen. Pray that the Spirit will open their eyes to see that their good behavior is not good enough for God. They think it is. Pray that they will understand what they really deserve and their need for Jesus. Pray that they will admit that they are as lost as prodigals. That's hard for Pharisees to admit. What do you mean we're as lost as them? And pray that they will feel the Father's love and hear him summoning them home like the father to the older older son. Come on in. Come on in, son. Pray that they'll hear that. Wouldn't it be awesome if a year from now your prodigal brother or, or sister or son or daughter or dad or mom or coworker came home to God? 
Wouldn't that be awesome? It's already happened in the last few weeks around here in several cases. So will you bow your heads with me and close your eyes? And I just want to ask, as you do, how many of you have, you are burdened for a a lost prodigal in your life? Would you lift your hands? There's a lost prodigal in my life I'm burdened for. Many, 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 many hands. Okay, you can put your hands down. How many of you have a lost Pharisee that you're burdened for? Proud, self-sufficient, doesn't need Jesus. Yeah, many of us. Well, these next few moments, I'm going to invite you to come and join me and come up to the front and kneel if you can or stand. And maybe you want to bring that little prayer guide up with you and just pray for your lost prodigal or lost Pharisee to come home. You can do that. And then after you've prayed for your loved one, I'm I'm going to urge you to lean over to someone next to you and ask them, how can I pray with you? Let's join in this together. Our prayer partners will also be up here and they'd love to pray with you for whatever the Lord might be speaking to you about. Maybe you hear Jesus calling you today to follow him with all your heart and you want to say yes. I would challenge you to go on record with that. Come and tell a prayer partner and you want to be all in with Jesus and ask them to pray that God would give you the courage and strength to do that. So church family, these next few moments, let's come together around the throne of God. Let's pray for our lost prodigals and Pharisees to come home to the Father, okay? Join me, won't you? Let's stand together.